Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Thank you for downloading this podcast. Share your business story with us and we could be giving you the advice and support you need to take it to the next level. 702 Cape Talk Business Accelerator with NetBank. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. 24 minutes to 10 o'clock. Yes, it is that time of the morning. Give us a call on 021-446-0567-011-883-0702. We are taking your SMSs as well on 31702 and 31566. No, hold on. What's the number? 31? I wasn't here yesterday. I've forgotten the numbers, Thomas. <laughs> What's the SMS line again? Uh, ah, you've forgotten. <laughs> Three one five six seven and three one seven zero two. Is that the yeah, that's the one. Oh, Chris, please come to the rescue. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm glad that doesn't just happen to me. <laughs> oh, welcome to the show. Tell me about Good this micro sized human stomach. What's that about? Well, scientists want to be able to understand how the stomach and the intestinal system forms. They also want to understand how it gets infected by certain bugs, how it gets diseased. You could do experiments on people, you could do experiments on animals. Very expensive, not to everyone's ethical taste. Much better to do an experiment on a mini stomach grown in a dish to learn how all those processes work. And then you could even scale your mini stomach in a dish up to grow a complete stomach to replace a diseased stomach in someone who needs one. Now that's the, the, the paper that's being put forward in the journal Nature this week. It's by James Wells, who's a researcher at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center in America. And what this group have done is to take some stem cells, and they've used both, both mouse stem cells and also what we call IPS, induced pluripotent stem cells, from humans. These are cells where you start with, say, a skin cell and then use various genetic tricks to reprogram it so this skin cell becomes a stem cell again. Mm. And by putting these cells in a dish and then adding growth factors, which are chemicals that make cells grow and follow certain sets of chemical instructions, and they used a combination and cocktail of these growth factors that would be encountered by stem cells inside a developing embryo in the area where the intestinal system will develop, over the course of five weeks, a little clutch of cells in a dish slowly turned into what this team dub gastric organoids, which actually sounds like a rather painful and unpleasant mm. condition, but in fact looked at down a microscope, these two to four millimetre small structures that form have all of the features of a future stomach. They've got a stomach lining, they've got appropriate gland tissue, they can even make digestive juices. And this uh, means that now they have a vehicle for studying how those cells form and how they talk to each other chemically, what genetic programs they run as they develop, 
And just at the end of the paper, tantalisingly, there's this really nice experiment where they challenge their microstomachs with the gut bug Helicobacter pylori, which is linked to the formation of stomach ulcers and can also cause stomach cancer. And this is enabling them to begin to study how the cells in the stomach mm -hmm. respond when this bug comes along and challenges them. So a wonderful system which will give us new insights into how the stomach forms and may ultimately hold the key to being able to enable us to grow a whole new stomach for someone who might need one. Well, growing new guts takes on a wholly different new meaning. Our lines are open for you, 021-446-0567-011-883-0702. Chris, we're getting more and more questions about Ebola. I mean, every week after you've spoken to us about it, uh, you know, it, it generates more questions. And I like that because it means people are interested. Uh, Max wants to know, once somebody has been cured of Ebola, is are they immune to it or exposure would also lead to reinfection? As a general rule, and thank you for a great question, Max, when we're exposed to an infectious agent, whether it's a virus or a bacterium, then your body mounts an immune response against that particular organism, which means that you make both antibodies, which are small pieces of protein shaped like a letter Y, where the arms are outstretched like holding your arms above your head, they go round in the bloodstream and can lock onto any thing that resembles that bug and neutralize it you also marshal a cell army you have white blood cells that are capable of recognizing components of the invader and they sit there as a memory so that if it comes back again you can very quickly make lots of these cells which will produce the chemicals to destroy the invader including the antibodies now that response is very specific which means that when you are encountering bug a you make cells and antibodies that recognize exclusively bug a they don't recognize a whole host of other microorganisms and that's the power of the immune system it's a very focused attack mm. but ebola while there are uh, one while there's one particular strain which is the ebo v which is causing the current outbreak and it all stems from one person and this means that if you have encountered that strain of Ebola, you will be immune subsequently to it. There are four other strains of Ebola, three of which do infect and do kill humans. And they are quite different from each other genetically. So it's not clear at this stage whether if you had one type of Ebola and then were unlucky enough to encounter another, although the other ones are a bit rarer, then you might not be so immune to that particular new strain of Ebola. Mm. That said, as I say, all of the cases of the present outbreak are being caused by one strain. And also, there may well be enough of a sort of similarity between strain one and strain two that the two, your immune response does sort of blur a bit between the two in the same way that smallpox, which was a huge scourge for thousands of years, if not hundreds of years, that was wiped out in humans by taking a virus very similar to smallpox, which was cowpox, or a vaccinia rather. And when this went into people, it made the immune system capable also of recognising some aspects of smallpox, so the immune system could, could kill that virus as well. So the likelihood is, if you encounter Ebola, you will be immune to the strain that's circulating. You have a high likelihood of not dying if, because of the other strains that are circulating, but it's not a given that you will be immune to the other strains no one's done the experiment. We don't know that. Mm. All right. Our lines are open. 021-446-0567. 011-883-0702. Is it Ross in Thornton? Hi. 
Yes, hello. Um, yeah, I'm wanting to ask a question on pain. Um, I've noticed that if I, say, stub my toe, I get an initial pain, but nothing like the pain that comes afterwards. And this seems to happen with impact. Uh, if I fall off my bike, which unfortunately happening all the more frequently as I get older, uh, that happens. But if I burn myself, I find the pain is immediate, but then it reduces. I just wondered, the body seems to be punishing me for something <laughs> that uh, you know, happened in the past. <laughs> I like that. Yes, Chris. Hello, Ross. Well, I'm sorry to hear about your bike trauma. The way in which the pain system works, there are pain nerve cells in the body which are very tiny, very thin, fine-caliber nerve cells that supply every part of your body. And they feed into the spinal cord, and then the spinal cord creates a, a nerve pathway or gives rise to a nerve pathway that carries the pain signals, almost like a relay station, up to your brain where it then is presented to your consciousness. Now, when you injure yourself, the pain that you experience is caused by trauma to the tissue where those nerves are, and that trauma either directly stimulates the nerves or, and is more likely to be the case in your, in your situation, the trauma also damages a lot of tissue around where the nerves are. The damage to the tissue can include uh, things like ripping blood vessels, it can include bursting open cells, and this leads to the process of inflammation. And inflammation is a chemical process where you release various factors locally which are there to help you heal because they bring in parts of the immune system, they open up blood vessels, and in the process they make other chemicals that can activate pain nerve fibres. And this is why you get an acute pain, an immediate ouch, when you first hurt mm. yourself because you're directly stimulating nerve cells which register damage to tissue and then you get the subsequent build-up of pain because that's the inflammation kicking in and that inflammatory process produces chemical stimuli to the to the nerve cells which then carry that signal up via your spinal cord to your brain there's also another phenomenon where the more pain you have from an area you can actually end up with if you get very severe damage to a part of the body you can end up with more 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 uh, powerful driving of the pain circuits in your spinal cord to the extent that even uh, stimuli which you wouldn't normally interpret as painful such as finely stroking or touching the skin can trigger a barrage of pain signals in your spinal cord making the area feel even more painful than it should do so there's a series of different manifestations of pain the best way to control pain of course apart mm. from a paracetamol is uh, that you can rub the affected area and when you rub the affected area what you're doing is activating nerve fibers that that sense fine touch and those nerve fibers when they go to the spinal cord release or trigger the release of chemicals that switch off the pain signals and that's why when you injure a part of your body your reaction is to want to rub it because that actually controls the pain and it's called the gate theory of pain thank you very much ross and uh, johnny richard i see your calls coming to you in a moment 702 and cape talk the naked scientist 021-446-0567 or double one double eight three oh seven oh two. Let's go to Richard in Fourways. Hi. Good morning, how are you? Fine, welcome. Your question? My question is if humans are born homosexual and the closest species to a human is a dolphin, are they born homosexual as well? Okay, if some human beings are born homosexual and uh, can that happen with dolphins? Chris? Hi Richard. It's really hard to answer this question. 
And the reason it's hard to answer this question is if you, <coughs> excuse me, if you look at the animal kingdom, you will often find animals indulging in homosexual acts. Uh, in other words, instead of a male and a female mating with each other, you end up with two males mating with each other or trying to. But is that because they want to, uh, as in they derive some kind of pleasure from doing that, in the same way that a human would say, this is my preferred sexual orientation? Or are they doing that because there's a sort of motor system in their brain or a sort of system in their brain that says, now it's time to mate, and they just get it wrong sometimes, and they just pick the wrong sex to mate with? So we don't actually know what the motivation is. We know that humans have a motivation and an inclination to have a chosen sexuality. We don't know what the situation is with animals because you can't ask them. You can't ask, is a male animal your sexual or your preferred choice of sexual mate? So it's, it's certainly true that you will see animals practicing homosexual acts, whether or not that's uh, through their choice and preference or mistake on their part, we don't know. Thanks, Richard. And uh, is it Johnny in Easteros? Hi. Hi, Ridi. Hi, Chris. Uh, my question is about ATP. If, uh, say, for instance, Ridi is running her marathon race and someone wants to overtake her, uh, the burst of speed she needs, does it emanate from the mind or is it something that's automatically stored in the muscles? The en- Hello, Johnny. Energy? Mm-hmm. The, the answer is that your muscles are... A- basically burning chemical energy, which, as you have correctly said, is this chemical ATP, adenosine triphosphate. Where does that come from? Well, your muscle cells have mitochondria. Mitochondria are little powerhouses which effectively came from bacteria once upon a time, but they turn sugars and two carbon units, for want of a better phrase, into ATP, and they burn They burn sugars in the presence of oxygen to do that. So the energy that that actually makes your muscles work is is this ATP molecule. It doesn't actually make muscles contract, though. It actually makes muscles relax. And in other words, what it does is it enables one filament in your muscle called myosin to let go from an adjacent filament called actin and then grab hold of a bit more actin further along the actin, pulling the two closer together. And so you actually need energy to relax, not uh, to contract in the first place it's, it's, it sounds slightly strange but mm-hmm. this is the reason why when someone dies they go into rigor mortis and this is because the muscle cells in their body and uh, rigor mortis is when you go stiff this is because the muscle cells in the body run out of energy because you've you've died and the muscle cells then can't let go of themselves and so they become rigid and it's only when the muscle then begins to physically break down chemically that then the person becomes floppy and loose again. That's, that's why rigor mortis happens. So your burst of speed during your marathons, really, is mm-hmm. all down to ATP, which your mitochondria and also uh, other structures in your cells, other, other chemical processes, churn out. Well, that will be very useful to those brave runners, unlike some of us who are tackling the New York Marathon on Sunday and the Soweto Marathon on Sunday. Good luck to you. John in Renberg, hi. Hi there. Good morning. Uh, Chris, how do ants smell? I leave leftovers out and go some, <laughs> away for five minutes, and when I come back, the place the is ants. teeming with ants. Yeah. How do they... And my ants seem to be uh, carnivorous. They don't eat sugar. They, they have never bothered anything sweet, but leave a protein out, and they're there in their hundreds. Tim Noakes would be very, very happy, and I like <laughs> the way you say, my ants. <laughs> Yeah, Um, I I think this is a universal problem. 
Ants don't have noses, but they do have antennae, and the little antennae that project from their heads are extremely sensitive chemical sensing systems. Inside those antennae are bundles of nerve fibres that run out along the inside of the antenna and then poke out through a little hole to a structure called a sensillum, and this is where there is a chemical docking station, which is a receptor. It's a certain shape, a bit like if you imagine a system of gloves along a stalk and you could put your hand into the glove those those gloves are different shapes and sizes and they can detect molecules in the environment and as the ant goes around and touches the area with its antennae it's seeing if there are any molecules there which will dock on to these different shaped gloves on its antennae and activate the nerve cells inside and this goes for for liquids as well as smells it's detecting volatile chemicals in the environment ants move around randomly and they'll explore an environment and as they go, they leave a trail of a pheromone system, so they're leaving behind a chemical trail, so that that tells them how they got there, so they can find their way home. It also tells their nestmates how they got there, so that they can follow the other ant that went and found this amazing food source. And having found some food, they follow their trail home again. They then present their findings to the rest of their nestmates and persuade their other colony mates to come with them, to go and exploit this food source. And as their nestmates follow the original path of the first ant, they reinforce that trail, and this means that the trail encourages more ants to go along it, and at, at, pretty soon you've got a very large number of ants all coalescing on an abundant food source in order to get the energy from it and return it to the nest. You make the point about ants being carnivorous. Yes, absolutely, ants are pretty much omnivorous. They're, they'll eat anything they need in order to get the energy that... Or, or many species of ants, I should qualify that. Many species of ants are, are omnivorous. They'll eat anything ranging from bird mm. poo, which well, has got um, lots of phosphorus in it. Loads, it's very good for, for growing new ants if you've got phosphorus there. So you need bird poo right through to meat, insects and sugar, of course. Gerdi, our last caller in Morningside. Hi. Hi, good morning to you all. Good morning, Rudy and Chris. Um, I just wanted to know uh, about dogs. I've got an English bulldog, and I want to know if they can pick up a person's character. Like a quickie, for instance, we've got a gardener inside the house who he absolutely adores. We've got a gardener in the complex who sometimes comes in the house. He can't stand him. We also got a fact about two years ago and found out that our domestic was involved. And funny enough, the dog never really liked her from the beginning. Okay. Chris? Well, dogs are very perceptive. They've got extremely good senses of smell, taste and hearing. Their vision is less good, but not poor. And they very quickly learn to associate the signals being fed to them by those senses with outcomes. Because at the end of the day, dogs are pack animals, so they have to understand the understanding, they have to understand the behaviour of other individuals around them. And this can also include individuals that they have evolved to be friends with, humans. And as a result, dogs are very good at reading the signals that people give out, which signals intention. Now, if a dog has a bad experience with an individual, because when you're not around, that individual kicks the dog or something, the dog pretty quickly learns that this individual is not good news. And similarly, dogs can plug into other signals that we give off, which will indicate what we might be doing next, because the dog learns not to recognise what we're doing right there and then, but the sort of pattern of behaviour that's going to lead up to us 
doing something. And this is actually being used medically. There are now medical alert dogs which can be trained to tell their owners, for example, if they're diabetic, that they're showing the sorts of behaviours that they tend to show when they're going to have a hypo, a low blood sugar, which might lead to them becoming unconscious. There are other people who display certain behaviours when they're about to have an epileptic fit. The dog can warn the owner, you're showing those sorts of behaviours by doing a certain thing it's been trained to do, and the owner knows to move into a safe place in the room, away from furniture, where if they do collapse, they're not going to injure themselves. And this is big business, and these dogs are very, very good at doing this. We, we were actually chatting to a lady who owns one the other day, and it's phenomenal. Chris, thank you very, very much. Time just flies. We'll podcast this conversation and chat to you next week. Thanks a lot, Reedy. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye.